For those of you that um, read the blog, the, the two of you along with my mom, you know that um, this particular sermon has been rather difficult. Uh, most of the time as a pastor, you, you try to let the Word guide you and let that develop uh, what you want to say. Um, in this cir- circumstance, it's a little bit backwards because there, so, with some of the passages we've talked about, it's leapt off the page in terms of what uh, our core values are. Some of the things that we wanted to talk about are very present in Matthew. This one, it was a little bit more hard to find, and the sermon, as it turns out, is a little bit more uh, teachy than preachy. I hope that you'll bear with me in that, a little bit more uh, informational rather than inspirational, but it's important. We're talking here about the historic nature of the gospel, that in town is a church, a community seeking to embody the historic Christian gospel in the city of Portland. So, we're going to investigate what that means. And as I was reflecting on uh, the text, I realized that I wanted to preach from something a little bit different. So, I'm going to read the the first part, Matthew 5, 17 through 18, that's printed in your bulletin. And then we're going to go back and look at Matthew 16, which we looked at from the very, at the very beginning of our sermon, our sermon series, but from a little bit different perspective. So, first of all, Matthew 5 and then 16. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then chapter 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I will tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we get started. Father, in a sermon that's a little bit less traditional um, than what we normally do here, a little bit more teaching rather than preaching, I pray nonetheless that You would inspire us with the gospel, that we would cling more fervently to You as You cling to us, that we would realize that we stand in a long tradition of people who have believed the gospel and have gone to their deaths saying that Jesus is Lord and that He is the Messiah. And so, as we reflect upon the great history that we have, the great tradition that we have behind us, would we stand firm? And would we preach the gospel with great conviction? And would we believe it for each other, for ourselves, and for those outside these walls with great fervency? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the business world, you hear the phrase, adapt or die, that the world is changing, consumers are changing. If you keep doing the same thing over and over, the world is going to pass you by, and you'll wither and die. Yet at the same time, companies have roots. They have a reason that they exist. They were founded for a particular reason. Law firms practice law. They don't make widgets. 
construction companies don't normally begin making iPhone apps. And, you know, Apple is a computer company. It's not like it's going to start making cars all of a sudden. Oh, wait, that might be happening. But companies that know why they exist, they stay true to the reason that they got started in the first place while at the same time adapting to changing circumstances, the changing environment in which they do business. Now, the church has this challenge as well, this desire to be rooted, to be connected to historical tradition, to be lashed down to something that we didn't invent. We're not making this up as we go along. And yet, also, corollary to that, a desire to represent the truth of the gospel in a way that's, that current people can understand. And there's always new discoveries to be made, new ways to say things. And so that we have this tension, this struggle between orthodoxy and contextualization, between continuity and change. And so we're talking this morning about the historic aspect of our mission statement. In the next two weeks, we're going to look at two sides of what I would say is the same coin. Next week, we're going to talk about the fact that no one tradition can fully capture all there is to say about God. No theological system is an exact duplication of the Word of God or an exact representation. Because of human finitude, all of our theological systems are provisional and they're open for review or what I would say reformation. Yet at the same time, we're rooted in history. We're not making this up. In town has theological roots that are important. And what we say frequently is that in town is a historically orthodox church. So what does that mean? Well, there's two big ideas. And as I said, it was difficult to find what I wanted to say in Matthew, but it does come out. And there's two big ideas here. One in Matthew 5, Jesus comes announcing a new kingdom. He's preaching something new, and we see that the traditionalists reject Him for it. It's too new. It's too innovative. It's too dangerous. It doesn't sound like what we've been teaching for hundreds of years. Yet in reality, what does Jesus say? That He's adapting old truth to a new time, to a new age. He says He comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. The Son of God is historically orthodox. Even Jesus is lashed down to what came before Him. He stands on the shoulders of the prophets and the tradition that came before Him. Of course, it was written to prepare for Him. Then Matthew 16, we see Peter identify Jesus, identifies Jesus, and the church gets its first verbal confession of the deity of Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that the church will be built, it will be constructed upon a particular confession, though only in its infant stages here when Peter utters it, it has contours, it has content, it has boundaries, it has meaning. And soon after, the New Testament books begin to be written, and you begin to read, as we did in 1 Corinthians, of the tradition or the traditions, these oral confessions of faith, these hymns, these baptismal vows, which were recited at times of baptism, and they find their way into Holy Scripture. The New Testament writers codify statements of faith about the nature of and character of God and His work in the world. They bind the church to a certain expression of what it means to believe the gospel, what it means to be 
a Christian. But what we may not know is that this process actually continues outside of the confines of the Bible, because the Bible as we have it today wasn't fully established until 300 years later. You had these various lists that were passed around that named different books, but it took almost 400 years until all of the early church fathers and mothers agreed that this is the Bible that God gave us, that the Holy Spirit guided them to choose which confessions of faith made it in and which books made it in. And not only did the partitions of the Bible take some time for the church to come to agreement on, also some of the doctrines that we consider now to be very fundamental took time for the church to agree that they were actually found in Scripture. Such ideas as the deity of Christ, the, how Mary is the mother of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is a member of the Godhead, and oh, I don't know, the Trinity. The Trinity as a doctrine took time for the church to develop. It is in Scripture without a doubt, but the church had councils to establish this, and it took time. This word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, but it was decided hundreds of years later that the Bible uh, was written, that this was indeed what the Bible taught about the nature of God. And these big pieces held the church together with one minor exception for a thousand years. For a thousand years, there was one church for the most part. And each time some person or some idea would threaten that unity, they would call together councils to try and preserve that unity, what we call the ecumenical councils or the ecumenical creeds. You know, Christians get into fights today like kids on a playground about all kinds of things and lesser and lesser important things. But these creeds, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed, Nicene Creed, All of these things, along with the Apostles' Creed, which wasn't a council but was cobbled together through various confessions of faith, they united Christians of all time for a thousand years, and then as the church splintered into three, it still was held together. There was still an overlapping core that was represented in these creeds. And the distinction between these creeds, these ancient creeds, and what And many of the modern confessions that we have is that they were developed to hold the church together rather than to define a splinter group's claim upon the truth that they have it unlike everyone else. These creeds define what it means to be Christian. And what I hope, what the leadership wants in town's ethos to be is that with anyone with whom we share these fundamental commitments that we are far more alike then we are different. Though they be Baptist or Lutheran or Catholic or Pentecostal or Greek Orthodox, if you walk into one of those churches, it could be vastly different in its expression and its methodology, but what undergirds it, what is at the center of it, is far more alike than what is different. Now, these creeds have a defining effect. These traditions have a restrictive effect. They're designed to be binding. They're confining the church to what the church has always believed wherever it has existed. And there's two sorts of objections to that. One is a secular objection, and maybe that's yours today. If you're here visiting, if you're wondering what the church is all about, 
How can I be a free thinker? How can I be an individual? How can I express my individuality when there is a creed or a tradition that tells me what I have to believe? Nietzsche sums this up best by contrasting those who inquire versus those who believe. And he says, in the Christian world of ideas, there is nothing that has the least contact with reality. And it is in the instinctive hatred of reality that we recognize the only motivating force at the root of Christianity. Wow, that's pretty harsh. That stings. Is confessing a creed tantamount to intellectual suicide? A lot of people think so. But you also have a Christian objection. That's right, a Christian objection to creeds. There's a suspicion based upon the Protestant principle of the priesthood of all believers, that you don't have to be a priest to understand what the Bible says, that you can pick it up and you can read it for yourself, and that is absolutely true, one of the core principles of the Reformation. But it's true to a degree, and if you turn on TV late at night and you find one of those religious channels, you can see the downside of this, because anyone with a TV show can open the Bible and tell you what they individually think. And therefore, we have hundreds and hundreds of denominations and different interpretation. There's no uniformity when you flip the channel or the radio dial of what might be said about what the Bible actually teaches. But the founders of the Protestant Reformation, you see, Luther and Calvin and Wycliffe and Huss, far from starting something entirely new, they wanted to reform the church from within. They wanted to recapture faithfulness to the creeds. They wanted to go back to the fountain, to the early church, the early church fathers and mothers. What they were against wasn't tradition, but traditionalism. They felt that the gospel itself had been obscured in the medieval church, and they wanted to restore it. But you see, whether your objection is secular, whether it's theological, the fact is that life isn't possible without a creed. Creeds are inevitable, personally and corporately. Religious or not, everyone is living by a creed in this room this morning. Steve Turner, who is a a British music journalist, he spoofs contemporary society's creed of creedlessness, and he says, we believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt. We believe that all religions are basically the same. They all believe in love and goodness. They only defer on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. We believe there is no absolute truth except for the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. You see, everyone, whether they believe it or not, has a creed of some sort. And the question is whether it's a good one or not, whether it is intellectually consistent, whether it leads to flourishing and to grace and to peace or suspicion and division. Flannery O'Connor, the great southern Gothic writer, says, far from hindering intellectual enterprise, dogma is an instrument for penetrating reality. So, how does all of this land in terms of the ABCs of in-town? 
I'm not starting a whole other sermon here, but how does this all land? We have three points here that I want to convey to you, and they're all relatively short. But first of all, three things. One is ministry in our context. Having a historical rootedness helps us to minister effectively in our context and adapt without compromise. Also, it helps us to grow in humility, and also it helps us to maintain submissiveness. So, three areas where the creeds help us, where historical rootedness helps us. First of all, context. In whatever fading stage of Christendom that we are presently a part of, insofar as the church continues to further parse out its theological differences with other Christians, we'll continue to be more and more irrelevant to our neighbors, and we'll continue to decline and die a little bit each year. But if we see our context, that is, Portland and the metro area, as a post-Christendom, post-modern, post-everything culture where the church is definitively dying, then we'll be glad to have other believers still living out their faith with the same core commitments that we have. If you attend the membership class, one of the things we talk about is that if in town is going to offend someone, we want it to be with old Christianity and not with new Christianity. What does that mean? Well, in chapter 16, Peter says something incredibly profound and potentially very offensive, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is a bold claim, and that's old Christianity. This is what C.S. Lewis calls mere Christianity, not Protestant, Reformed, Presbyterian, denominational Christianity and all of its provincial theological commitments, but old Christianity, the vital parts that say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the creator of the world, Jesus came and died an atoning, sacrificial death for all of His people, and He loved the world that He came and gave of His body and His blood And He was resurrected to new life and will one day come back to establish His kingdom on the earth. Mere Christianity, if someone is going to be offended by in town, we hope it will be with that and not all of our theological hobby horses and our cultural distinctions. We want people who connect to in town to be able to encounter the essence of Christianity, not distracted by the predilections of our enclave. We want them to meet Jesus the hope of the world, and not have to navigate through centuries of theological quibbles in order to get to Him and to see Him. If people don't like us, and it's possible, if they don't like in town, we hope it's because they don't like Jesus, not because of our political values, our theological hobby horses, our sectarian identity. And the best way to ensure that is to situate ourselves in the great tradition in the universal creeds, in mere Christianity. We are a Presbyterian church. It's printed right there on your bulletin. We're proud of that, but we don't lead with that. We're a Reformed denomination, and it's very important that people that belong to Intown know what that means. It's important, but we hold those convictions humbly, not in the way to say that everyone else in the church needs to be corrected by our theology. We never want to allow these commitments to obscure the path to Jesus Himself. So, first of all, commitment to historical orthodoxy rooted in mere Christianity 
allows us to do ministry effectively in our context, to adapt without compromising the essentials of Christianity. But it also helps us to grow in humility. Listening to and valuing the voice of those who have come before us is a, pra- is a practice of humility. G.K. Chesterton calls it the democracy of the dead. Tradition, he says, means giving a vote to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It's the democracy of the dead. Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You see, here we recognize the limits of our knowledge, that there's something about our world that must be revealed to us, told to us, rather than discovered. And this should breed epistemological, theological humility where we decline to indulge constantly in fruitless boundary disputes with other Christians, with the posture that we somehow possess the truth, and we need to correct everyone else. No, the truth possesses us. We are baptized by Jesus. We don't baptize Him with our theological systems. The creeds, the center of Christianity, helps keep us from accommodating endless theological skirmishes and speculation, or division over things that are less and less central to the core tenets of the faith. And then finally, this idea of being a historic church rooted in historic orthodoxy, having theological rootage and linkage to the great tradition helps us maintain submissiveness. We're talking about submission to what some people have called the great tradition. That is the overlap between Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Greek orthodoxy, or orthodoxy for the most part. That is what the universal church has taught wherever it has existed for all time throughout the world. And it is restrictive. It should be. It's binding. And it helps prevent what Freud calls the narcissism of small differences, that we need to find or even exaggerate small differences between us and other people to maintain a feeling of superiority. The narcissism of small differences have led to the fact that we have 33,000 denominations in the world today. Can you get your mind around that? 33,000, not churches, but denominations. It can't possibly be true that they all possess something so vital as to separate from the rest of Christianity. No, the creeds lash us down. They hold us down, even as we seek to creatively exegete the culture that we live in, to contextualize the truth of the gospel. We are reminded, we are held captive by the the creeds, by the parts of the gospel that don't change the central elements to the Christian story that aren't provisional, that can't be negotiated without losing the very character of Christianity, the very reason that we exist. There's a pastor actually here in Portland who will remain anonymous because she doesn't come off very well in this story, but uh, she interviewed the famous atheist uh, Christopher Hitchens a few years before he died. And she asked him if he's angry at Christians like her too, meaning that he seems to be writing against fundamentalists. And she wonders, are you mad at 
us too, because we don't actually believe in the atonement or take the stories of Jesus literally. And Hitchens says, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was Christ and Messiah, and that He rose again from the dead, and by His sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you really are not in any meaningful sense a Christian. An atheist understands Christianity better than this person, this interviewer. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Friends, he really believes this, and it's central to his life, and it's why he is willing to go to death to uphold it, to believe it. There are things that can be negotiated about the faith, but there are things that can't, that aren't provisional, and that if you give up on them, you give up on the very fact of Christianity. He believes this, and a church that is historically orthodox, though creative in its engagement with the surrounding culture, will keep giving our ancestors a vote, that we will be more than just a social justice organization, as important as social justice is. We talked about that last week. We have to be more than that. We have to be more than a club or a tradition or just a group that happens to meet on Sunday, but we believe certain things are true about the universe and about the world, and we stand or fall on those non-provisional components of the faith. Those who encounter in town, we hope will encounter the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the Son of the living God, the risen Christ, And he builds a church decisively founded and constructed upon that confession. And notice, as we noticed this when we first preached on it a a number of weeks ago, Jesus, or Peter, says to Jesus, here's who I think you really are. And Jesus confirms it, and he says, Peter, now that you have said something about me, let me tell you who you are. Because of this, Because of this confession, because you understand who I really am, you are the bedrock of my redesign of the entire world and of all humanity. I'm going to build a a kingdom. I'm going to build a people, a church that will threaten death itself upon this. What threatens death is the proclamation that Jesus is the risen King of the whole world. And if we ever lose that, we lose and we cease being a church to begin with. The creeds, friends, they tell you who you are. They tell you that if you believe who Jesus is, that you are a threat to death and hell and the grave and everything that is wrong with our world. You are people who have received God's favor and His love and His welcome. They have been revealed to you. You haven't discovered them because of your ingenuity, your intellect, because you were smarter than everyone else, but they were revealed to you. They were given to you. You were appointed to believe. You see, your hope comes from somewhere else. Blessed are you, Simon Peter. Blessed are you, for this did not come from you, but from God Himself. And if you are in Christ this morning, it's not because you've said all the right words or because your dogma happens to be more pristine than someone else. It's because God reached out to you in the person of Jesus and He offered you grace and He gave you new life. And that's what the creeds, that's what historic orthodoxy is so eager to express and to keep the church honest to. 
that without Jesus, we are all sunk, and we're sunk as an institution. So cling to Him. Cling to His grace. Cling to His body and blood as we come to the table in a few moments. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we pray that we would be humble, that we would be submissive to You and to those that have come before us, that we would be creative in our context but not be so proud of our ingenuity that we lose sight of who we are and who we're meant to be and why You have planted us here. Lord, I pray that we would live out the mission of the church that You gave to Peter those so many years ago, that that would be our mission as well, that we would live out the claim that You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus, let us do that with urgency, with grace, with humility. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.